thewellnesscoach.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat, featuring Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up For A Chat, about the hottest topics that are most important to you. I'm Cindy O'Mara. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Kim Morrison. And today we're actually going to talk about Soul Survivor by Karen Smith. Karen wrote this book 10 years after uh, the Bali bombing. And it's not just about the bombing. It's actually about what happened to her life and how she changed her whole thinking, her whole, everything about her seemed to change. Now, I've known Karen a long time. I've heard the story many times. But when I read the book, I realized I didn't know Karen. I was absolutely blown away, and that's probably not really a good thing to say in front of Karen. <laughs> she said it. She actually said it. You oh. know, Cindy, you and I have known Karen a long time, and I think what I love most about such an incredible, hideous, tragic event is to this day now we are able to smile about the learnings, the lessons, but also have gratitude and acceptance and forgiveness perhaps around what happened through Karen's life journey on that. I think what it's inspired me the most is, like you say, reading the book. But it's not just an autobiography or a book. There's actually tools, techniques, um, suggestions, um, life-changing lines in there that I think this is a self-help book, not an autobiography. Yeah, definitely. And and it's funny because Kim and I have been talking about the book because we had, you know, we had... We hadn't read anything before it was finally released. And although we'd heard lots of stories and that was always fun, but we both had these aha moments at the same times in several chapters, didn't we? Mm. So there was one that the two of us just, which we will talk about, but both of us went, had an aha moment. Mm. And it was just a simple statement that Karen wrote and we both saw it, and she didn't even know she'd even done it. Mm. But it, for us, it was quite amazing. But as I was reading it, I went, I thought I knew Karen. I, I, I really thought I knew her. I thought I knew what the Bali bombing was all about. I, I really thought that I felt at that moment what was happening for people. I had no idea. No, and I None. think, Karen, one of the greatest gifts you've given us is an insight into something from one person's perspective. So... Welcome, you gorgeous being. Welcome, you beautiful soul survivor. Can you tell us why you finally told your story? Um, I guess I knew that the 10-year anniversary was coming up, and I knew that at the 10-year anniversary it was going to be a perfect opportunity for me to try to convey my story, my journey, what I'd been through, you know, I know that everybody has a story and everybody has a journey. And for me, what I'd been through had been so significant in terms of um, who I was before it and who I was after it to the extent that there are so many memories before the bombing that I I just don't remember. I just don't remember who I was back then. You know, I don't remember who I was when I was 20 and I don't remember who I was when I was 30 because now it's like it's... And I'm 42 now... But now it's like so different. I'm just such a different person and I really wanted to use the 10-year anniversary as a catalyst to be able to get my story out and to also get what I'd learned as a result of my experiences out. You know, it's funny, it's almost... I was speaking at a conference yesterday um, in Sydney and it it was almost as if I've spent the last 10 years training myself for this time where people would be most ready to hear the lessons that I felt I've learned as a result of my experiences. And the 10-year anniversary was a perfect opportunity to be able to really just share it all and not hold anything back. And, I mean, it's a very... Soul Survivor is a very intimate account of my story. You know, not just what happened, but what happened to me and how I felt... Um, I actually saw, as I'm reading the book, I actually saw that the world conspired to put you there. Mm -hmm. It did everything it had to do to put you in that place at that time. With that outcome. With that outcome. Mm -hmm. Because it was almost like everything, like your whole history, you know, you talk about 
you know, before this all happened, your family and the meeting of Greg and what happened, you know, through the whole process. And I went, oh, my gosh, the whole, the whole thing was conspired to get you there, to help you get to where you are now. And those people in Sydney, this is what I actually believe, is those people in Sydney were there. Their whole life has been about getting to that position. And then that position from there will take them to the next one. And I, I always feel this now is that whatever we have to do in this world, it seems to conspire to get us where we need to get, no matter what. Mm. The people we meet, uh, the places we are, you know, listening to you. If I hadn't have been, I, I keep thinking this, if I hadn't been at that talk, which I was also speaking at, we wouldn't have met. Mm. And, and I just kind of think, well, what would my life look like now? So you met Greg for a really good reason. Tell us your yeah, story. Yeah, tell us your story. I just, oh, here I am. Oh, the shivers have started. Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, you know, in a nutshell, um, my, you know, I, I, I was living in Sydney and I was living just a normal life like most people do. I had a really awesome career and I was general manager for a huge big company with, you know, 360-odd staff across two states and I really felt that I'd worked my way up the corporate ladder and I was, you know, had it all together. The perfect life, the perfect house, the perfect partner, perfect car, perfect dog, perfect shoes. You know, it was all just... (laughs) It is about shoes, Karen. It's always Mm. about shoes. Mm. If in doubt, it's about the heel. (laughs) We have learnt that about you. Yes, it's always about the heel. (laughs) We love you. (laughs) (laughs) But I had, you know, I had the perfect life. But unbeknownst to me, beneath the surface of my relationship, there was something that was quite sinister that was shifting and something changing that I didn't see. And that change was occurring in Greg where he got to the point where, um, and I'll never really understand it because he's not here to tell the story anymore, but he took his own life. And, yes, our relationship was in trouble. We were were seeing counsellors. We were trying to make things work. Because there'd, be, there'd been this distance that had grown between the two of us that was never something I wanted. I never wanted the relationship to disintegrate, but yet I seemed to be watching it disintegrate without any ability to control it. It was the most, you know, when I think back on it now, it was the most confusing time for me where everything I thought I knew about being with somebody that was my, you know, the love of my life, Everything I thought I knew about being in a relationship with people, I mean, really, I didn't have a clue. I, I, didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. I was way outside of my realms of capability with, with the relationship because I couldn't change anything. And then there was the one night um, he took his life and it just plummeted me into the depths of despair, into the depths of depression where... I just couldn't stand myself. I couldn't stand living without him. I couldn't stand waking up every morning without him there. I couldn't stand the thought of what I, what I thought I'd done. Did you blame him, Karen? Oh, I've never blamed him. Mm. You know, it's funny. There's been a lot of talk from a psychological perspective about the emotional stages of healing, and I've never been through that mm. because I've never felt anger for him. I've never felt blame for him. I've never felt... I've never felt anything other than um, real compassion. And yet it sounds to me like you went into a blaming of yourself. Big time. Mm. Big time. Because blaming him made him wrong. And because he'd taken his life, there was no way I was going to make him wrong any more than what I'd made him wrong before he took his life in our fighting and our exchanges of you know, drama, I wasn't going to make him wrong. And somebody had to, blame, had to be to blame and that had to be me. It had to be my fault. Do you still think that we have to blame somebody for something now? Not then, but mm. now. Not now, no. And it takes time to get to that. Um, it takes time to get that perspective. That's absolute fact. Now I can look at things and think that there's a level of purpose and a level of universal influence involved in everything that happens in life. And I really believe that with all my heart and soul, I believe that to be true. 
So now I can look at that and think, well, you know, it didn't matter what I would have done, didn't matter what I could have done, nothing could have saved him from what he was going to do. And had I not gone through my own suicidal experience, I probably wouldn't know that. I probably wouldn't understand that. So to just in that experience, let's let's get back to your story. Mm. Okay, so he's he's passed. Yeah. You're coming to, well, maybe not coming to terms with that. No. What happened over that next year? Over that next year, um, I gave up my work. Um, I lost, I think, 10 kilos. I was down to 51 kilos, and I'm 63, 60, 62, 63 on a normal day. And I was just, I was on Valium. I was flaked down on a lounge. But the problem with Valium is, is it... Um, disables the body but it doesn't disable the mind at all and the mind for me was my most damaging part of, of that whole experience was the things that I was saying to myself and how much I hated myself and how responsible I felt I looked at his family and I looked at his friends and each time I looked at everybody that was close to him it just tore me to shreds because of what I felt I'd done and I couldn't live with that I, I couldn't live with knowing I'd killed somebody who was the love of my life it was too much it was too much for me to handle so the depression that took up residence between my two ears was, um, you know, it was, it was death-defying, really. I mean, it was a depression that just brought complete darkness and I couldn't see a way out of it. And I didn't want a way out of it, quite frankly. I didn't actually want to not depress, be depressed. I wanted to be depressed. I wanted to make myself as sick and as depressed as I could possibly be to the extent that I would get myself so detached from myself that I would be at a point where taking my life was easy. I wanted, to, I wanted that pain for myself and I wanted it with every cell in my being because I felt it was my price. And I wanted, to, I wanted to hate myself as much as I possibly could so that I would pay the price for taking his life or for him taking his life. I wanted that. So basically you took total responsibility for what he did. 100%. Mm. And then what? Um, well, after his funeral, um, I just went on this spiral of, of not eating and not sleeping and just pacing and trying to find ways to end my life. But... That it didn't feel like I could do it. I didn't have the guts to actually do it. And then as it came close to his 12-month anniversary, I got to a point where I found very peaceful. I found great peace in the concept of taking my own life. And I got myself prepared to go away to Bali for his 12-month anniversary. And I was going to take my own life in Bali while I was there. And I actually felt peaceful about it. I didn't feel that I couldn't do it. I didn't feel like it would be something that would stop me. It was just something that I felt I could do easily. So I bought myself a ticket to go to Bali for the, on the 12th of October and my two best friends decided to come with me, Jodie and Charmaine, and um, it was at that point that we landed in Bali and were in the Sari Club that night at the 2002 Bali bombings. And, of course, that just changed everything. So can you tell us how that changed and did Jodie and Charmaine know what you were thinking? Jodie knew. Charmaine didn't have a clue because Charmaine and I weren't that close. Um, we knew each other well, but Jodie and I had been best friends for like 10 years. So Jodie had inclinations because of the kind of conversations I was coming home having with her. Your sister also was a little bit concerned, wasn't she? Yeah. Well, my whole family were. You know, my whole family could see that I was just walking around consuming air but not really there. But when you rang your sister and said goodbye before you went to Bali, she, everyone else was fine, it seemed, but she just had this really... She was quite fearful that you were not going to come back, which is quite amazing that, you know, she felt that immediately when you said, oh, I'm just saying, you know, probably just a friendly thing, you were probably saying, oh, I'm just saying goodbye, I'm going to Bali. Yeah, and that's what I, that was my intention with the phone calls to all of my family. Um, but, yeah, it is bizarre with my sister. She's very in tune with me, and she's always been the person who's looked after me as a kid growing up. I'm the youngest, and she's the oldest. 
So she's always felt this sense of responsibility for me as well. Um, and, yeah, she, she said to me later that she, she just had this inclination because she tried to save me from myself for the whole year prior. And it was her who, in her very forceful way, she's an incredibly powerful person and incredibly forceful, that in that forcefulness I just kept pushing her further and further and further away. Because And I kept saying to her, you can't save me. Stop trying to save me. You can't save me. And for her, those were words she couldn't digest. Those were words that she wasn't prepared to accept, not for anything. So when I rang to say goodbye, she, she had an inclination that I was up to something for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, I think our listeners hearing this conversa- conversation with you, some of us will be able to identify we've been in these positions before, we've not felt good enough. Your story, in a way, is a, a story a metaphor for other people's stories. So what I'm hearing is is that state of depression. There's a lot of people with depression out there, Karen. And, mm. and so so it's interesting, amazing, incredible that you happen to be in a place that basically blew up, shattered your mm. whole story. And that's so beautifully put because that's absolutely the reality. Um, the night of the 12th of October, I was in the Sari Club with Jodie and Charmaine and that was the night of the 2002 Bali bombing where both Jodie and Charmaine were killed and my skull was crushed to the extent where I needed um, staples just to hold my skull together. Can I just ask there, because when I read the book, I'm like going, how did Jodie and Charmaine, obviously they, they couldn't even hardly find their bodies. Mm. How Were you right close to them? We were centimetres from each other, standing in a club, that was full of loud music and loud people screaming and talking and we were centimetres from each other, leaning in, talking to each other because the noise was so loud around us, we couldn't hear each other speak. So we were leaning in, talking right into each other's ears. And yet they passed away mm. and you survived. That, I, like, I'm le- reading that part and I'm going, well, had she disappeared for a little while and gone somewhere? This is my thoughts going through my head. So mm. it's almost like... Um, you were meant to survive. Well, I know you were meant to survive. I've always said that. But tell us, keep going with that beautiful story about... Mm. Well, I don't know if it's a beautiful story at this point. This is when <laughs> I think I started crying. <laughs> well, I shed quite a few tears. Yes, me too. <laughs> but tears of... of um, how would you say? Tears of, of, of opening, of, of understanding. understanding. I think it was an understanding for me is that I never... I thought I did, but I knew nothing. And that's what got me, is that every time I shed a tear, which is every morning, by the way. <laughs> I read, I read um, Karen's book every morning. I, I'm actually not completely finished because it's only just been released. But I, I read it every morning. I, I sit down and, and I just have time with Karen. That's, that's why I see it at the moment. And every morning, like I was in a coffee shop this morning and I'm, I've just got tears running down my eyes and I'm like trying to hide myself. <laughs> but, but I don't think it's a book. So those of you that hate crying with books and movies, I'm one of those, um, and I don't see the point of reading or seeing something sad. This isn't. That's no, not what this is. No. This is a. Maybe it's because we know you, but it's mm. a. It's a revelation, my darling, of of understanding someone's experience. So so yeah, keep telling us. Keep tell telling us. tell more of the story. <laughs> okay. Um, well, we were in the Sari Club that night, and it was about eleven thirty Bali time when um, I just felt this. Um, I just felt like a G-force, like a great rush of, of air or something hit me and hit my, my body, my torso. And I had no idea what it was until um, later on that night. But when I woke up, because obviously I was blown unconscious for a period of time and I don't know how long, but when I woke up, I found myself just covered in, in bodies and pieces of people. I, you know, there was a there was a head by my shoulder, and there was a leg across my my body, and there was an arm, and there were faces, and no one was moving, nobody was moving, and and I I had no idea what had happened, but I I had this voice in my head screaming as loud as loud for me to get out from underneath where I was, and all I remember was my first inclination was, there's been an earthquake, get out, get out, get out. 
and I'm yelling at the top of my voice saying, okay, okay, because the, the, the voice in my head was screaming at me to get out. So finally I, you know, I got out and I surveyed the place, but what I saw was just, it was darkness, but then there were these flickers of orange flame just, um, you know, as I, as I think of the memory now 10 years on, orange flame dancing with pace across my complete vision until they finally got to my face and were burning my eyelashes and I could smell myself burning because I was standing waiting for Jodie and Charmaine to come out and I was crying out for them but the sound of people screaming and the sound of um, a building burning is actually really loud. And I don't know if I couldn't hear them or I couldn't hear myself because of all the noise around me or the blast had deafened me. But I know I, could, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't comprehend what it... I couldn't comprehend sound. All I knew was what I could see and what I could feel. And what I saw were people running past me towards the back of the club for, um, you know, as fast as they possibly could. So what I saw were people running past me towards the back of the club. At the back of the club, there was a hole that had been blown in the wall. And there was a guy pushing us all through this hole, and he was amazing. This tall, dark, handsome Adonis he looked like. You know, he just looked like he had these giant wings, and he was so good-looking, and he was just, you know, built like a Russian tank. And I don't know if that's really what he was. I'm, impre- I'm impressed that you actually noticed in yeah. the middle of all of this. <laughs> well, but that doesn't surprise us, actually, does it? Well, one of the first things I noticed was that I lost my shoes. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have your heels on, that's why. That's right. <laughs> I've lost my shoes. I, when, I, when I was getting out from underneath all of the rubble, I had to leave my shoes behind because they got caught. So <laughs> a little slip on numbers. Um, but he didn't realise, this guy didn't realise that um, he was putting us into uh, another area that was already on fire because the Bali bomb didn't just bomb, it didn't just level the Sari Club, it actually levelled blocks either side of the Sari Club as well as behind the Sari Club. So getting out from behind the Sari Club was building after building after building that had been demolished by the blast. And unfortunately, the blast, and it was interesting, the blast didn't just take out the building, it actually drove craters into the ground. So we were falling, I was running with other people, and we were falling into great big craters that were just pitch black. We had no idea where we were. And I remember these big, thick electrical cables that broke my fall on one fall down a ditch. And... um, I grabbed those cables and hooked them underneath both of my arms so that the cables were in my armpits. And then I walked myself along the cable because other people were just continuing to fall into this pit of complete darkness and I had no idea what was all the way down there. So while everybody else was falling into this pit, I was trying to crawl my way across the cables suspended in midair and still not being able to see anything because it was just absolute darkness. Do you, do you know what astounds me just listening to you saying this? Mm. Is 10 minutes ago we're talking about someone who's planning her death. Mm. Now we're listening to someone who's fighting for her life. It's Big incredible. Time. Big time. And, I mean, it is. It's, it, it, it's the dichotomy of life like that that has me completely perplexed because the thought of taking my life never entered my mind for a second. As you were fighting for it. As I was fighting for it. Mm -hmm. It never entered my mind the fact that I'd gone there to take my life and why don't I just surrender to the injuries? Why don't I just surrender to the bomb? Why don't I just surrender to the... Fall on the pit. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it was... was, And I say this often, but I, I honestly believe that the human instinct for survival is not human. I believe it to be superhuman because the strength that I had, the focus and determination that I had, and my ability to make decisions with absolute lucidity and clarity, with no doubt, no questioning, was something I've never experienced before or since. And I don't believe that a person in their in their final hours is left alone. I, I, I really believe that there is a there is something grander at play at times like that. I have to believe that because of my own personal experience. I know the me that's sitting here, you know, talking to you girls now. Mm-hmm. And to our listeners sharing our story, 
I know that me was not the me that was climbing brick walls and running through flames. And um, I know it's nothing like it, and I know some of you might laugh at this, but when I was going to uni, I parked my car outside and realised that I parked the car, the, the bumper hooked on the car in front, and I freaked and panicked because I couldn't get out. I got out of that car. I was so freaked about how much the damage was. I lifted oh. the car off the other car and reparked my car. Oh, my gosh. Now, I would never believe I did that, except that when the students who were all at ground level, the windows were at ground level, they were looking up and watched me do this, and everyone was saying, and so I said, oh, that wasn't that hard. And I went back outside at, at our break after the lesson and tried to lift the car and could not budge it. Mm. So I reckon that's that same, I know it's adrenaline, I know all those things come in, but yeah. there is something greater. It's like a mother trying to rescue her child. Or There are grander forces at play. They're just, they just are. Mm. It's, it's almost superhuman because I heard a, a, a story about a mother whose son was trapped under a car. Yeah. And she lifted the car. To get the sun out, and she did. She lifted the car and with she, ease, probably with ease. Yeah. yeah. She, so, you know, our body is capable of amazing things, and and yours is your, you know, doing everything. You know, the commando on the wires. Like all I would be thinking of, like practically, what I'm thinking about when you're telling the story is, what if they're alive and electric? Don't that's touch them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's my brain now talking about. I'm not in a in a position where you were, where you just went. I can't fall into this pit any further. I have to keep, you know, going. Quite, yeah. a, quite an irony, really, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Mm. And, and is that the pit where you were trying to help that lady? It was further along. Okay. Um, it was further along. There was a brick wall that I came to, and I got over the brick wall somehow. I have no idea how. But I got over the brick wall, and when I got over the brick wall, there was a... There was a I was still in this... I, I was still in a crater... And there was this young girl who was not injured at all. She was in perfect condition. And there was this grate, like a drainage grate, that was um, leading from the pit or from the the crater out onto the street. So it was like a ladder. And it was a perfect ladder. It was absolutely a perfect ladder. But for some reason, she wouldn't climb the ladder. She couldn't seem to get her foot to stay on the rung of the ladder. Her foot kept slipping off it. And I put her foot on the rung and I said to her, come on, you can do this. And I gave her a shove on the bum and I said, you can do this. It's just a ladder. You can climb the ladder. And she put one foot on and then she let her foot slip through again. And it was almost like I was watching her do it purposely. And then I said to her, no, you put your foot on the rung and climb up it like it's a ladder. Don't let your foot slip through. And she kept doing it, and I must have tried to help her four or five times. But I was watching her physically let her foot slip through, and it was as if she was doing it on purpose. And she wasn't injured. She wasn't hurt. There was no blood. There was no bones broken. There was nothing. And I, you know, I got to a point where I said to her, I'm sorry, I can't help you. And I had to get myself out and leave her there. Now, I don't know how she got out or if she got out, and I'm pretty sure she would have gotten out because by the time we got to that phase of the damage, there was no more flames. So she would have eventually gotten herself out. She was not in any danger. But you make a perfect comment there, uh, and this is what struck me, is you talk about her, and then your final comment about her is, I realised at that point that I can't help anybody who's not prepared to help themselves. Mm. And I think we've all got that figured out, is that you can give them all the information like people can be listening now and you can give them all the information they need in order to, to get themselves to where they need to get out of depression, you know, health, whatever it might be. But if they're not ready to help themselves, no matter how much information and goods and products and seminars and conferences, they're not going to go anywhere. No. So that to me, when I read that, I, I just had this, mm. she's right, there's no use trying to help people that are not prepared to help themselves. Mm. Do you often wonder at this point, about the other people that you saw that night, who they are, where they are, mm. who survived, who didn't survive. Do you mm. often think about people? Have you met people since the Bali bomb? I met one fellow, um, Andrew Charby, just a couple of weeks ago because he's put out a book as well. I met him and he was just, you know, just a beautiful man, beautiful soul. But other than that, no, I've not met any of the other survivors. Um, yes, I've been curious from time to time as to, you know, what their lives have been like and, 
you know, if they'd been on similar journeys to me and, um, and so on. But I, unfortunately, I was in such a bad place myself that to actually go and be involved with anybody else who was going through any kind of pain or any kind of healing was just too much for me. Um, so I really just it, I isolated myself. I isolated myself from all of the other survivors and, you know, just about anybody else who had anything to complain about. I just stayed well clear of them because I was complaining enough about my own life. I couldn't hear anybody else's anybody else's pain. So let, let's go back into the, the struggle, the fight, the, the clinging to life. You ended up in a hospital. You were then given, and, and, and we don't have to go into everything here because the book just explains it so pertinently and so beautifully. But when did you get the, aha, I'm going to survive here? I mean, you were told you weren't going to live in mm. that hospital. Mm. How did you make that life-changing decision in that moment that no matter what, I want to get back to Australia? I started thinking about my family and I started thinking about my dog and having roast lamb with my mum. And I started thinking about my dad and how he calls me Buffy and my sister and my brother and I thought about those people and I just had this unbelievable sense of love overcome me. Whereas before when I'd gone to Bali, I couldn't feel any of that. I couldn't feel any love too much towards my family or from my family. I was incapable of feeling any love. But then when I was lying in the hospital bed and I thought of my family, I thought, that's what's real. And whatever it takes, I'm getting myself home. And no one is going to tell me that I'm not going to make it or that I shouldn't make it. And you know when you said in there... um I mean, at this point, you still thought Jodie and Charmaine were alive. You mm. heard their voices even. Um, you were told that you had to have a life-saving operation. It's interesting to me that it's almost like you got the biggest slap in the face, my darling, the mm. biggest slap in the face yeah. to wake the hell up about what you do have in your life. Absolutely. So how did you find out Jodie and Charmaine weren't with you? Was that a long time later? Or were you still living in hope even when you were trying to get back to Australia? Oh, no. I mean, I, I was convinced that Jodie and Charmaine were alive when I was trying to get back. I was convinced. And I just kept thinking, well, they're either going to be at the airport, they'll be on the plane, I'll run into them somewhere. And when I got to the airport and I got on the plane and they weren't there, I actually thought to myself, well, good on you. You're staying and, and having your holiday. Which is so funny. I know. When I, when I read that, I'm like going, were you delusional or you just... You had actually, you know what? It wasn't delusion. You had no idea what had just happened. No, I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, we all knew because we were listening to it at home, and I realised that you had no idea until quite a way. Even when you got home, even after the hospital, that your family protected you, and in Bali, you would, you know, the language barrier there, so you would would not know. I did hear one of the nurses say bomb, terrorist bomb. And when I heard that, I went, oh, so that's what it was. And there were eight people in my hospital room. So I just figured we were eight unlucky people. I just thought it was us. And I, because, you know, I, I was convinced that Jodie and Charmaine were fine. So for me, I just thought, oh, well, good on them. Stay and have a holiday. Good on you. You know, I was just going to be a wet blanket here anyway. So stay and... <laughs> Have fun and, you know, I'll see you when you get home. So did you get frightened? Were you starting to get frightened when you were in the hospital? Not any even point? remotely. I, I didn't get that in the no. book. Like, I'm, like, thinking, I'd be, like, going... Where's my mum? Where's my mum? That's what I would be mm. thinking. Mm. And the fact that, you know, when you're in that hospital bed, that you hear Jodie. Mm. This is what gets me. Is like I, I'm questioning all the time, going, was it Jodie... In spirit, is that who you heard, you know, or was it just someone that sounded like Jodie? Mm. You know, that what what have you ever thought about that? Well, you know, I guess it's that part that's made losing Jodie very hard to reconcile because it's as clear as what I am hearing you girls now is what I heard of Jodie, and I'd lived with Jodie for twelve months, so I knew the sound of her footsteps, I knew the pattern of her footsteps, and I heard her footsteps. And I actually sent one of the nurses out to get her because I heard her footsteps and then I heard her talking on her phone or I assumed she was on her phone because it sounded like a one-way conversation. And 
the clarity of that was the same clarity of your voice with me now. Do you know what she was saying? I couldn't quite make out what she was saying. No, I couldn't work that out because there was a wall and doors closed between me. I, I heard her in the corridor outside of my room. And I sent the nurse out and I said, that's my best friend Jody. tell her I'm in here. And then the nurse came back in and she said, no, there's nobody there. Um, she must have already gone downstairs. So I said, well, make sure that my name is on the list of people who've survived so that she knows I'm in here. And they went down and put my name on the list. But interestingly enough, they put Jody and Charmaine's name on the list underneath my name as well. So there was a blackboard that had everybody who'd survived on this blackboard at this particular hospital. And under, under, there was Karen, spelled C-A-R-R-E-N, and then there was Jody, spelled J-O-D-I. That's how Jody spells her name. And then there was Charmaine. So for all accounts and purposes, Jody and Charmaine were accounted for. And Jody's brother called me in the hospital and he said, where's Jody? And I said, don't worry. I said, she's fine. I just heard her out of my room. I just heard her just a second ago. So I know that she's absolutely fine. So I said, so don't worry. It's, it's, it's totally cool. You've got nothing to worry about. I'm sure she'll call you shortly. She was just on the phone and I'm sure she was trying to get hold of you. Yeah, mm. it just blows me away. That blows me away. Here I go again. <laughs> okay, I, I, Let, let's fast track though. I want to get into this part what? about oh, Frank. Yeah, Frank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to talk about Frank. Oh, Frank, oh. isn't that funny? We both. I'm like going. Okay, Frank. 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 Right. Let's get to Frank. <laughs> well, Frank was an amazing man. Frank was a guy who was on holidays in Bali from the Australian Federal Police. He was positioned and stationed in East Timor. And um, I was lying on the floor of the medical centre for about um, five or six hours before they saw to me because there were just so many people who looked to be in a much worse state than me. And because I was so lucid, I was so clear, I I was fine. And I kept telling everybody, I'm totally fine. You go see the other people because I've got it. You know, I've got this. I'm cool. And um, finally, Frank landed up picking me up off the floor and there'd been people who'd passed away all around me. So I was sitting in, you know, my own blood and bodily fluids. And then Frank picked me up off the floor and he looked at me and he just said, right, you've got nothing more to worry about. You're totally safe now. He said, I'm here to look after you. You can relax. And I mean, honestly, you should have seen Frank. Really. Frank had these guns to die for. <laughs> Yeah, these huge, big arms. He was just so strong, just like a mountain of a man. Fit, big, strong chest, and he was in a, a, a blue Aussie trucker's singlet. And he just, he was just, you know, I think because he was the ultimate rescuer, mm. you know, he was almost like Thor, you know? <laughs> so he was the ultimate rescuer, and when he put me on the table... And he told me that I was safe and that I had nothing more to worry about. It was enough for me to catch my breath because I'd been on st- in a state of such high alert for such a long time to try and keep myself alive and keep myself focused because I didn't know what was wrong with me. I knew that I was bleeding, but I didn't know from where. And I didn't know what was wrong. So he just gave me enough time to say, okay, I'm going to let you take care of me for a little bit and then I'll take over again. And um, as it turned out, the doctor discovered that my skull was crushed. So Frank, and there was no anaesthetic. So Frank um, said to me, look, he said, they're just going to, they're, they're just going to, they're just, look, they're just going to put a staple in, just, you know, they're just going to do a little staple. And so he held my hand after he'd cut my clothes off and revealed my nakedness. <laughs> and he held my hand and um, he, they put the staple in and I heard the crunch, but I never felt a thing. And I went, oh, that's easy. No props. I can do that again. And Frank said, yeah, well, we're going to need to do that again. Just one more time. I said, yeah, okay, that's fine. I didn't feel the first one. And then it was 38 times later that Frank finally said, okay, this is the last one. (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't want to reveal the severity of it um, because all he wanted was to make me feel safe and he wanted to make me feel like I was going to be okay. And he did an amazing job of it. And it it was perfect because it gave me as I said, time to catch my breath so that when they put me on the stretcher and into the ambulance to take me to the hospital, I was on high alert again and I had the strength to come back again to to, to keep myself alive again. Now let's just talk more about Frank, will we? Okay. (laughs) You had the launch for Soul Survivor just recently and 
Frank, you hadn't seen Frank in 10 years. No, that's right. And as a result of um, a wonderful television magazine show, you had the opportunity to meet him again. You didn't know, though. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I had no, no idea. <laughs> what a surprise that was. The interview was amazing, Karen. And it, what was interesting is that you had the interview, then you came home and Kim and I came running around and you told us all about this amazing, you know, Frank, which we'd never heard about, had we? Mm. That, that's what surprised mm. me is you'd never really talked about Frank. So, you know, we talked, we heard about this whole thing with Frank. So Kim and I decided we wanted to meet him. And then you tell us that he's coming up for the launch. Mm-hmm. So Kim and I were like two little teenagers, actually. <laughs> we're going, Frank, where's Frank? Where's the guns? Where's the guns? But I think more importantly, all, hum- all humour aside, I think we both wanted to say thank you to yeah. Frank. Thank you for saving our girl. Thank you for bringing her home. Thank you for... We didn't even know you were our girl at that point, but we take ownership for it now. Right. And, and knowing that someone like Frank, they're angels. Oh, yeah. You know, there's people, there's Franks everywhere. And I think the beautiful thing I got out of Frank was, hey, no big deal, I would have done this. It, it wasn't even a question to him. It wasn't a hero status he was after, nothing. And I get in those life and death situations, there is no hero worshipping. There is no. no glory in any of this. It is flippin' survival. Mm. Yeah, he was very humble. His humility was amazing. Like, I think he was quite taken back oh. by that whole launch. He was. I had breakfast with him the next morning, and he was. He was floored. He was floored that so many people would have such respect for him and, and everybody wants to talk to him and to be in his company, he was he was really taken back because for him, he was just doing his job and he was just being his normal self. And he'd been in that line of work with the Australian Federal Police for 30 years. So for him, it was just par for the course. But for us, it was extraordinary. Were you one of many he did that for? Yes, I was. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. I was. He'd already been at that medical centre for hours because he had two of his friends were injured in the SARA plant. And he took his two friends to the same medical centre that I landed up going to. And um, the doctor said, no, we can't fit anybody in. So take your friends away. And Frank said, no, I'm not taking them anywhere. He said, how about you give me a medical kit? I'll go and stand at the front and help anybody that comes through. He said, we'll lock these doors, but you look after my friends. And that's what happened. And so tell us, um, what was it like to have all those people? Let's talk about the launch because um, then we can bring up some things about your family there. But for us personally as your friends, to see a room full of people, like full, that was overflowing that room, and to witness the love that each of them... You have made such an impact on so many people's lives now, which is such an irony given you were so prepared to give it up. Mm. One question I'd like to ask you is the symbol of the butterfly, because that came through loud and clear in the book launch. What does that mean in Soul Survivor? Well, I've got a picture of a butterfly on the cover of my book and it was a story that my dad told me when I was just starting to get my head around being or, or participating back in life again. Mm-hmm. And my dad told me the story of the transformation from the caterpillar through to the butterfly. And he said to me, it's not easy. It's, it's not easy when the caterpillar goes through that transformation. He said, but... He still does it because that's his purpose in life and that's why he's here. And as a caterpillar, he thinks he's got it all going on just because he can bulldoze over a blade of grass, but he doesn't realise what else is possible for him. Um, And my dad was explaining to me that through the chrysalis, through the transformation that goes on inside of the chrysalis, that's not his most challenging part. His most challenging part is being the butterfly in the chrysalis and then bursting out so that his wings have all strength. So then he can get a new perspective on life. And for me, I thought that was very poignant because, you know, I'd gone through losing Greg, I'd gone through losing Jodie and Charmaine, I'd gone through the depression, and I was ready to start to participate in life again, but I didn't realise that the fight of my life was still ahead of me. I thought that I'd gone through the fight of my life by going through all of that pain, but that wasn't it. That was the beginning. That was entering the chrysalis, if you like. Exiting the chrysalis was all about me finding the gift, finding the beauty and finding the magnificence in my experiences, not in the loss that I've had, of course, but in the experiences that have affected me. 
It was finding the beauty in all of that and then having the strength to spread my wings with that beauty and know I am that beauty and not use my experiences as a stick to beat myself with anymore, but to use my experiences to add more colour to my wings. And as a result of that, the fight of my life was adding colour to my wings and the fight of my life was spreading my wings and being beautiful, acknowledging that I was beautiful and my colours were beautiful and that then I could catch the breeze under my wings and see life from a very different perspective. And that for me has really been the, um, the real metaphor for my experiences. So that really is the significance for me. And, and now do you think your job now is to help other people get the colour into their wings? Are you still putting colour in your own wings? And how are oh. you putting colour in people's wings? Gosh, I mean, every day is, it's almost like I get a new spot. It's, you know, every day I get a new, I, I get a new colour of the rainbow because for me now, you know, my life now is all about helping other people realise that the chrysalis is not to be avoided, if you like. It's the, the, the chrysalis is the, is the vehicle for trans, transformation and the chrysalis can be severe or the chrysalis can be easy. You know, not everybody has to have such tragic circumstances as I've had in order to get the same realisations that I've had. You know, I really do think that, you know, I believe that I've had my experiences on behalf of mankind so that other people don't have to get blown up in order to wake up and see their own beauty and to wake up and just to catch life from a new perspective. I've taken that for them. I've gone through that on behalf of humanity. And because of that... That's what stirs me every day. That's really what drives me every day. That's what gets me out of bed every day is to be able to be an example and to be the most beautiful butterfly that I can be with the strongest wings that catches the biggest breezes, that sees the world from the grandest perspective so that then others, as they're entering the chrysalis or coming out of the chrysalis or even just not even needing a chrysalis, can see that possibility exists already. We don't have to go through great tragedy in order to wake up. My intention for people is for people to wake up absent of the tragedy because it's not necessary. It's really not necessary. What, what so, about Karen, though? I mean, I think, Cindy, you'll agree with me that the people listening to this will get this. I, I don't think there'll be a challenge in, in converting people's thoughts that are listening to this. They're already on this journey. But they might live with people mm. or be around people who, for want of a better word, would be cynical mm. about our new perspectives and our new truths and it's all right for you and, you know, those types of people. Yeah. So rather than asking you the question how we help those people, how do we support the people living with those people? Yeah, great question. Because I actually believe that um, we can't help anybody else. I really do believe that. No one can help anyone. No one can change anybody else. So I think for us, um, living with those people, the first thing we've got to do is, is give up trying to make them right. Give up trying to fix them. Let it go. Because when the time comes that they're going to be ready to fix themselves, then they will. The best that we can do for them is to be a living, breathing, eating, walking example of what else is possible for those people. So instead of jumping into the pit of darkness and sadness with them, feeling sorry for them, saying, yes, I know your pain and I feel for you, instead of doing that, you can acknowledge a person struggling, but then don't sacrifice your own life on behalf of them. Because by doing that, two people are missing out on participating in life rather than the one. And we can't help anybody else out of the chrysalis. It's almost just like that butterfly analogy. If anybody tries to break open that chrysalis, the butterfly either doesn't survive or it doesn't have the strength to, to, to survive once it's out. So it's, it's almost as if we're trying to walk their path for, path for them and we don't have that right. People have got to be able to go through what they need to go through and then when the time is right for them, they'll go through their own transformation as they're supposed to or not. Our job is to love them and support them irrespective, unconditionally, and regardless of what they're going through, our job is to love and support them and to be an example of what else is possible. Because when a person's in the depths of despair or a person's in a really dark place, they don't know what else to do. Because if they knew better, they would automatically do better. 
So the fact that they're not is evidence that they don't know better. And welcome to the human race, because we're all like that in some way and on some level. So for the, the, so the greatest thing that we can do for others who are suffering is to show them what else is possible for them, because they don't know themselves. So we show them. We be an example of that. And then if they make the choice to, be, to, to, to participate and to ask different questions and to try and heal themselves, if they make that choice, wonderful. If they don't make that choice, there's nothing we can do to change that. It's just their experience here, and we have to love them in spite of it. The other thing I got from the role, the book was the roles people play in your life. Like one person doesn't necessarily, is not the one person for all. Do you know what I like? Oh, yeah. To me, your book is your mum and dad, even though they're separated, played a very important, supportive, nurturing role. Your brother and sister were your sibling strength. That's okay, we'll get you through. But then there was, you know, Jodie and Charmaine, and then there was the Franks, and then there was the Mats, and then there's the... So it's almost like it's it's an interplay of human experience. Oh, but the yeah. thing that I get with depression and suicide is they're very alone. Yeah. So how do you become that community of someone who's alone, depressed, suicidal? How do, what's... It's frightening mm. being watching someone in that space. Yeah. What would be your words of advice now having experienced that to the people that are watching this? Don't give up. Don't give up on them. Um, because it is a very alone place to be. You know, being depressed and being suicidally depressed, it's an incredibly lonely place to be. And as I said earlier, if a person knew better, they would always do better. So they don't, by the time they get to that part where, or they get to that point where they can't see any other way out, our job is to show them what the other way out could look like. It's to show them that and to be that for them. It's not to enable them. It's not to tell them that they're right. It's not to tell them that they can do it. It's not to tell them that they, you know, that it's their own fault or they, you know, it's not to tell them anything other than show them what else is possible in life if they choose it? When I was in my darkest days, that whole community of people around me, all the friends and all the family, no matter what they said, no matter what they did, could not have stopped my intentions. The only thing that stopped my intentions or thwarted my intentions was being blown up. That was the only thing that was possible or that became possible, that changed my direction. Nobody else could have possibly changed my direction for me, not one person, as much as everybody tried. So the greatest gift that I look back on that experience now, the greatest gift that Jody continued to show me and that my family continued to show me was that they got on with living. They never let me go. They never dumped me. They never got sick of me. They never tired of me. They got on with living. Jodie still went out. She still had fun. She still went and partied while I was sitting at home. She still went out and had her life. Of course she invited me to come and sometimes I went with her. But she showed me that life was still possible. And my family... The same thing. My sister and her, my brother, they still got on with work. They still had children. They still went on and made money. They still went on and lived a life. My mum and my dad, they still went on and lived life. Nothing changed. You know, Jody actually said, and I quote this in the book, is that no matter what happens, the sun will always come up tomorrow. So even when we want the world to stop for us, it doesn't. The world keeps going. Everything keeps going. And that's the greatest thing that we can share with other people who are going through the, the hell of depression is to show them that the world is going to continue going on. So jump on board and come on the ride. But you can't force somebody who's not ready to do that. All you can do is run alongside them. You can't, have the, you can't um, walk their path for them and you can't take their pain away because that's their purpose. It's part of fulfilling their reason why they're here. And when they do eventually get to the other side of it, like me, they'll see that their entire experience has made them the stronger, more beautiful butterfly in order to live a more powerful life. And that's my hope and my wish for everybody. I had a real aha during this conversation that we've been having. And the aha for me was if you break 
the, the chrysalis before it's ready to become a butterfly, mm. you will kill it yeah. or it will struggle in the world. So I, I kind of, I went, but you're so right. Sometimes we have to go through that, that cocooning or that whatever it is and then we break out. And who are we to know when it's a person's time to break out? That's right. It just, I just had not had that aha before. Uh, and I, it, yeah, it was a great metaphor because we have to give people the time to go through it. You had to be blown up. That's what gets me is like, really, did you have to go that far? Some people don't need to go that far. Absolutely. And you know what? Some never make it. And those are the ones that just said it's just too hard and it's too scary out there and I don't know what it's going to be like and they don't make it and we have to just let those people, because that's their path, let them go and, and because that is their path. We can, like you said, live our lives, support, be an example. Because often what I believe is that it's about being an example, mm-hmm. not the words. Yeah. And Jody gave you the example of I'm out here living, yeah. I'm out having a great time. You can join me if you want, but she wasn't constantly, you've got to come, you've got to do this, you've got to, you know, like yeah. it was a beautiful example. Your whole family gave an example rather than, you know, words and, yeah. Just one, so true. just one thing I'd love to, as I know we're coming to a close, but you say that some people don't make it, Cindy, and, and, and that's their end. I'd like to take that one step further perhaps and have a different perspective even on that because I myself have had um, suicide in our family and the way I've supported my own self through this, and I really appreciate your feedback on this, is it was the end of this, perhaps this human journey, but perhaps it was the birth and the beginning of a whole new journey for us as a family, which I won't say was easy or is easy by any means, but it's certainly given me a perspective on depression, on um, suicide, on circumstances that are beyond my control, and not to feel the guilt or the or the blame of myself for not being able to stop that or things like that, but also appreciating that that soul, that journey, came to a place that was ready to embark on a new journey, not this one. So perhaps the, the death of a journey is, is could also be seen as the birth of another for all. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, I think I think that's a beautiful way to look at it. And I think that whatever whatever sense a person needs to make of that experience, you know, if you've had suicide in your family or in your life, whatever sense a person needs to make of it, they need to make of it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that, you know, nothing is nothing is for nothing. There are no mistakes. Everything is purposeful. Um, what I do want to say loud and clear, though, around suicide and around depression is that if anybody that's listening is either experiencing this themselves or has experienced it or knows of somebody who's experiencing it. One of the greatest things I actually did in my darkest hour was contact Lifeline. Um, so I really, want to call, I really want to encourage you guys to take advantage of the support services that are out there. Contact, Li- contact Lifeline, have a conversation with them because Lifeline are there to support with people who know how to support with these sorts of problems. They know, how to con- they know how to communicate with you and they know how to support you through your darkest hours and they also know how to support you when you're ready to support yourself. They're trained and they're brilliant at it and they were one of the greatest sources of support for me. So I really want to, you know, I really want to thank Lifeline for what they did because there were a couple of times where I had nowhere to go but the phone and um, they saved me from myself on a number of occasions and I, I, I take full hats off to Lifeline. So mm. please, everybody... Um, contact your local Lifeline office or find out the local Lifeline numbers. And I encourage, I think everyone should read Soul Survivor. For me, it's an awakening, like even though I've listened to you so many times before, but it it, it really gave me the understanding of what actually did happen. Mm. Um, And I, you know, like I I go, I don't know if I could have done it, but we don't know what we can do when we're in a position like you were in. Mm. So I encourage everyone to... um, Read Soul Survivor. So is it on your website? Yeah, it is. You can grab a copy of Soul Survivor on my website, which is all the W's, karensmith.com. And that's C-A-R-R-E-N, smith.com. And one thing I just want to finish up, having read the book, it's not just an autobiography. It's not just a story of someone who's gone through a tragic circumstance. You give tips, strategies, tools, and techniques. And particularly Mm. at the end of the book, 
what I loved was, oh my gosh, even me who's now in a, right here right now is in a good place in her life, I got so much from the book. And I was able to reflect back on the times that haven't been so great and pat myself on the back, perhaps for some of the things I have done well, and also acknowledge that, oh, I could have done that better. And you give us strategies. It's not just a book to read a story. And I really want to congratulate you on not only being an amazing author and, and giving us a story, because it's hard to write a story like this, but having the guts, the courage, the determination and the self-belief to know that your story is making a difference to every one of us out here. And from the bottom of our hearts, I can't thank you enough. You are not only a soul survivor, you are a survivor of humanity who gives us the strength to find our own soul. And for that, oh, thank you. How beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. We're always up for a chat with you, my darling Karen Smith. And, and really, seriously, congratulations. Yeah. And thanks for listening in. Uh, this is Over and Out from Cindy, Karen and Kim on Up for a Chat. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.